0: Thanks very much. If you've got your uh, Bibles, feel free to flick open to, to Mark chapter eight. And uh, yeah, we're going to spend about 25 minutes, half an hour or so, um, maybe a bit longer no, Hopefully up to half an hour, um, just in God's Word, and just uh, just really getting ourselves fueled up for heading back home to families, friends, and sharing the gospel uh, back where we we live. So it's Mark chapter eight and ridiculously familiar passage uh, to us all, I'm sure. So Mark chapter eight and verses 22. 233. They came to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spat on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, don't even go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Let's uh, let's pray, Father. We, we ask right now that we would, um, and this kind of uh, graveyard slot, as uh, people keep mentioning, uh, that we would have the concerns of of you in mind uh, rather than our own concerns. And Father, we pray that you give us hearts and minds that are just um, filled. Uh, with your spirit and thrilled by your son jesus we we ask that now as we open your word that you would meet with us again um, and that we would meet with you and enjoy you and we pray that we'd have that same experience that the disciples on the road to emmaus had that heartburn and the uncontrollable desire for jesus as the scriptures are opened in jesus name we pray amen so questions um we we all love questions and there's so many bizarre questions that are asked Um, in life. And I just got a few up on the screen. Um, Classic ones that Google was was asked. And here's the first one. Was the movie The Lion King based on a true story? And in case you're wondering, the answer is no. Is it illegal to kill an ant? These are things people have typed in. How can I download the internet? Is Christian Bale a Christian since his name is Christian? Um, I don't think he is. Anyway, um, and then the last Oh, no, it's the penultimate one. How do I unbake a cake? That was very, uh, I don't know if it was my wife after she made a gluten-free cake once. It was uh, it was pretty terrible, but it wasn't her fault. It's because it had no decent ingredients in it. Um, and then the, the last one. How do I turn caps locks off? And apparently they continued, I accidentally turned it on and all my friends are out mad at me because I think I'm shouting at them. The problem is literally ruining my life. So... <laughs> An interesting question has asked, but so many questions can be quite random. Some of them can be well thought through. Um, but the questions that Jesus so often asked uh, were good questions, questions that would unlock people's hearts to get people thinking about um, where they're at. And uh, you're probably familiar with a book by Randy Newman called Questioning Evangelism, where he basically tries to say that one of the key approaches that Jesus used in his conversations was to ask a question back to people to help uh, disarm the situation, to help them think about where they were coming from. And, uh, and so good questions are really important. And we're going to see a few of those that Jesus asks uh, in today's uh, passage. So we're going to go to the, the real question master, obviously not David uh, Dimbleby of East Sussex fame, where I live now, uh, in the mighty Polgate. What a lovely place! Uh, but we're going to go to Jesus, and we're going to see really how he deals with um, the, the real issue: is hardness of hearts. And he's going to see how he asks questions and how that deals with our hardness of hearts and how it softens them. And we're going to do, and we're going to see that the reason he does all this is that he wants us to see who he really is and he wants us to see and understand what he came into the world uh, to really do. So that's where that's where we're heading. Let's um, let's kick off with this first bit then. Just look back at verse 22. So Jesus heart, softens hard hearts. They came to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spat on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. So this healing of of the blind man, I think really serves kind of two purposes. One, Jesus loves this blind man and he's really longing to heal him so he can actually have his physical sight restored. But also there's, a, there's another purpose to it, that Jesus wants this physical healing to be um, a, a big picture to his disciples of, of where their hearts are at with, with Jesus. And he wants them to see the state of their hearts are very much um, hardened and, and blind. And you might think, well, where do you get this hardness of heart idea from? And one of the clues is in the place that they're in. Um, it says in verse 22, they were in Bethsaida. And if you remember back in Matthew 11, 21, uh, Bethsaida was one of those places, one of those towns that, that Jesus denounces because he's done miracles in them and they've rejected him. And so it's very much a place of, of hardness of heart. So that gives us a, a little indicator. But there's a big, um, chunky, explicit um, thing going on a bit before that as well. So if you just flip back to verse 16 and 20, 16 and 20 you see what I mean. Um, the disciples discussed uh, with one another and said, is it because we have no bread? Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you not still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I break the five loaves to the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I break the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? You see there, Jesus is very much linking um, and hardness of heart with blindness. They're they're synonymous. It's the same kind of thing. So when you get Jesus mentioning blindness being like hardness of heart, and then you get this st- story straight away about blindness, it's supposed to show us um, what hardness of heart actually looks like. And you see it in those 16 to 20, what it actually really is all about. And the hardness of heart is really this defective understanding um, of, of Jesus, that they've been in a situation where they've, they've run out of bread, they haven't got bread for this trip they're on, and they haven't. the disciples having this sort of spat, who's going to provide it, who's going to provide it, I don't know, Who, why, what's, what's Jesus talking about, why, why haven't we got this bread? And they're, they're kind of desperately scrounging around and, and have no clue about what's going on. And they're looking to each other to sort out the problem. And yet Jesus says to them, look, have you not realized what I've just done? I've just given over 5,000 people um, a whole fat feast and they've enjoyed it and loved it and there's been loads more left over. I've done the same for 4,000 people, loads left over again. I've provided abundantly for them. And Jesus is asking them, do you still not see that actually I provide for your every need? I'm the one who truly cares for you. I'm the one that you need to rely on in your life. And instead of looking to rely on Jesus and looking out to him. They do the old classic Martin Luther thing when he describes sin, of that they are curved in on themselves. They're just looking in at themselves. They're self-reliant. And that's really what hardness of heart um, is, is all about, is, despite Jesus' provision for them. And I think that kind of shows itself in, in, in different ways in, in our culture. And the way, you know, the, the root cause of self-reliance is, is sin. Um, but it has different kind of cultural um, pictures or manifestations, if you like. And it seems to me that all of us have this self-reliant filter, particularly um, in, in the West, where we get bombarded with the whole kind of secular um, agenda, as we've been seeing through the, the various talks we've been hearing over, over the last few days. And we get this secular agenda and we filter everything through that. It's the, it's the cultural air we breathe. And so it's almost natural for us just to think in a secular way, even though we're called to have Jesus as Lord and have Jesus shape every aspect of our lives and give us a Christian uh, worldview. And uh, I was reading a book recently by um, uh, a bunch of people from the from Voice for Justice, and uh, they were—the book's entitled "What Are They Teaching the Children?" And Linda Rose, who's a, a former barrister, writes about secularism. At heart, secularism teaches that man is supreme and responsible to no one other than himself and and she makes the point that that pervades our the whole of our culture and particularly our education system that that we individually i am supreme and i am responsible to no one other than myself and you see obviously with that cultural air we're breathing with that um information being bombarded um into us it's no wonder that we end up uh, that that stimulates our sinful nature so that we just trust in ourselves and and then have this hardness of heart towards um, towards our savior towards Jesus. So that's one one particular way we see it. I think another big way we 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 see this hardness of heart uh, manifesting itself um, is is through the whole kind of notion of of self esteem and the self esteem movement, which has been massive um, for years. Which again is getting you to focus on and rely upon yourself. And, and just to see and think about and say to yourself how good you are and how you can cope with anything and that you are beautiful in each and every way and all that kind of stuff. And, 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 it, and it's very much, again, something that pervades um, our, our culture. Even Frank Spencer, the legendary Frank Spencer. I remember back to um, watching an episode with Big, with Big Frank, not Frank Bruno, obviously but Big Frank, and he was talking in that episode of uh, Frank Spencer. Um, and he was quoting, I didn't realise what he was quoting, but he was actually quoting a French psychologist who was writing in the 1920s called Emilio Cué, And he said um, that what we need to be doing in our lives is having this auto-suggestion thing go on. Keep talking to yourself each day, kind of Robin Martin Lloyd-Jones and the Psalmists, but keep talking back to yourself each day keep chanting to yourself this this kind of stuff day by day in every way I'm getting better and better and, and Frank Spencer was doing that constantly and even when he'd ended up in a hospital in an A&E ward with five people um super glued to this uh, chair they had been trying to do in a CDT class um, things were terrible but yet he was to tell himself you're okay things are getting better and better and and I'm getting better and better and, and so I think when we um, live in this world, we've, we've, we're, I think we are aware, but we need to remind ourselves every day that we're going to be constantly hearing a worldview from everyone that we meet about every subject and for us to try and think Christianly about it all. Otherwise, we end up with this hardness of heart that these disciples have to Jesus because we embrace what our sinful hearts want and also what the world around us um, is, is telling us. It's interesting that um, uh, a psychologist even in America, a lass called uh, Lauren Slater, she, uh, she looked into all the research that a lot of psychologists have done over recent years in, uh, in terms of self-esteem. And she says, actually, uh, the leading psych- psychologists are saying that the whole self-esteem movement has caused massive problems in the lives, lives of people. And she, she writes, perhaps, as these researchers are saying, pride really is dangerous and too few of us know how to be humble. This is a problem for the disciples. It's been a problem ever since we rebelled against God in, in the Garden of Eden. And, and yet, I think all of us find ourselves often struggling with if having to look out to Jesus rather than looking to ourselves. Lord of the Rings put it put it brilliantly. I, I I never read the books. I was saying to other people earlier, um, but the films are better. And why why waste valuable time when you've got a good film? And yeah. um, so uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, but in that film, you remember Aragorn, um, the ki- the true king is there. And then you've got Boromir, played by Sean Bean, and, and Boromir wants to be um, the ruler over over the kingdom of men. He wants to be the king over everyone and everything. And, and he finds it hard when Aragorn comes along. He struggles with the fact that he's the true king. And yeah, at the end of the film, for a plot spoiler, when this big evil orc starts attacking him and Aragorn comes over and rescues him and slays this ugly orc, uh, Boromir just looks up to Aragorn and he realises that he's been, he's been wrong um, about him in his life. And he said, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain and my king, nicking a bit of stuff from Hebrews. And and I think it's a great kind of scene because he realizes actually being self-reliant, putting yourself on the throne, it's just gonna it's gonna stink. In our ministries, it's gonna stink when we when we do that. But what we need to keep doing is looking out to Jesus and seeing that He's the one who truly cares for us. And His true care is shown when we follow Him and keep Him as as the one on the throne of our lives. So. Back to the point, then. So Jesus wants to get these guys, um, hard hearts, softened um, towards him, and I just I love the the way he does it. Uh, w- one of the ways, um, before we coming on to the the take my hand thing, um, is is the, one of the ways he does it is by spitting um, on this this guy, which it seems a bit bizarre and a bit bit weird. But you see it there um, in in verse 23. When he had spat on the man's eyes. And I might re- recall kind of pictures of uh, World Cup scenes where different footballers are spat in each other's eyes. And it's, it's disgusting. And, and lots of people kind of sh- spilt a lot of ink over, what does this actually mean? But I think it's, it's what it actually naturally means, which is disgusting. And, and Jesus is making a point there as he spits on these eye, this, this guy's eyes. Remember, this is supposed to be a picture of, of what's happening with the disciples. Jesus is saying, look... When I spit in these guys with this, this man's eyes, and when I open his eyes to see the truth about me, you're going to find that disgusting. You're going to find that a bit like Boromir. You're going to find that hard you're, because the whole of your life you thought that you should be on the throne. You're going to find that disgusting this idea that he is king and you're not. And all of us naturally will will feel that way. And I think this is what Jesus is, is saying, and, and He's saying that's why you've been, it's been so hard for you to get so far. Um, who I actually am. So Jesus does a spitting thing, but then I love what he does as well because he takes this man um, by the hand in verse 23, and 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 it's just Jesus' personal touch with this man. It's his personal touch uh, with us that he takes us by the hand and he leads us um, where where we're to go. And again, that shows his kingship. That shows the one that shows us that he's the one who needs to guide us and lead us in life. And he takes this, this guy outside of the uh, outside of the village of Bethsaida as well. You remember, you know, we might look at our in our culture and think it's a very hard-hearted culture. And in terms of the philosophies of this age, yeah, it is. Um, but we do find, as we share the gospel with people, that there is actually a lot of openness as well. And there are people in the the, the country of Bethsaida, i.e., the UK, now um, that actually are, are softened to the gospel as well. And Jesus wants us to take them by the hand and he wants us to go and show them the truth, um, about him so they can see uh, the truth for themselves as they hear the gospel being explained. So Jesus takes them by, takes him by the hand and then his approach next is to ask him the question in verse 23, do you see anything? And he he asks him that not because, um, he needs to gain knowledge or because he hasn't got a clue whether this man can see or not. No, he asks him this question, do you see anything? Because he wants this blind man to admit the reality um, about his, his life. He's not manipulating him in any way. Again, another brilliant thing for us in our evangelism, we don't manipulate. We, we throw out the questions, we urge people, we compel people. But we use these good means of saying, look, tell me where, where you're at. Tell me, you know, a bit like we've seen with cross check uh, yesterday, you're asking him the questions, where, where are you at? What do you see? Tell me what you see. And, and then we have an opportunity to speak more um, about Jesus. So he, he asks him um, this question, and this guy admits, in all honesty, I, I, can see, I can see these trees, and these people look like trees, but I, I, I don't really see anything um, more than this. And I love it because it, it's clear, again, that, that people aren't always going to see everything um, straight away. We're not always going to see everything straight away. The disciples have been with Jesus for two and a half years, and it's only now that they're beginning to see, beginning to have softened hearts that see who Jesus uh, really is. And so I think that's so important for us, that we we may struggle. We think, well, I, I haven't got the kind of brain power that a lot of these people have got here or the gifts that people have got. I don't see things as clearly as other people in this room see things. But Jesus says, "Look, you know, okay. I will show you gradually. I'll take you by the hand. I will use you in the in the ways that I see um, fit for you. Trust me. Don't look to everyone else. Don't look to yourself. Um, look at me instead." And so that's what happens. Um, Jesus softens hard hearts by by gently revealing himself um, to people. So let's move on then to to why he does that. And he does it to see, so that we can see who he is. Look at the verses 27 to 30. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone uh, about him. So here comes some more um, eye-opening uh, questions from, from Jesus. And he asks them, who do people say I am? And, and they come out with all the responses. This is what everyone's saying. This is what the world is saying out there. They're saying, well, you're John the Baptist. They're saying, someone else is saying you're Elijah. Someone else is saying you're, you're the prophet. And as good as all those things are, and as great as all those people um, ha- had been, um, they're kind of, in general, I mean, the prophet ones, if they're talking about the prophet from Deuteronomy 18, quite accurate. But the other ones kind of sound great, but they're, they're diminishing Jesus. They're bringing him down from exactly the place that he, that he should be. And again, as we've been hearing about the cults and what Tony was saying, about how Jesus is, is reduced or he's downsized or he's changed, and, and, and he's not presented as the person he actually, actually is. And despite the many good things we may hear uh, people saying, If it's not that Jesus is really God's son, that he really is the Messiah, then they've not um, caught hold really of, of who he is. And so they get the wrong end of the stick. And that's why it's brilliant when Peter, um, who's, this truth is revealed to him by the Father, as we found in, in Mark's gospel, in Matthew's gospel. He answers, you are the Messiah. And I think that, that's something, again, we, we, we need to emphasize, because the Messiah thing shows us that he can't be put on the same level as everyone else. You know, the Messiah, who was anointed, we know. Um, it was prophets, priests, and kings. And, and, and prophets, what is that telling us about Jesus? He is the word of God. He's the one who speaks uh, the word of God to us, the truth about God. He's, he's the priest. He's the go-between between God and man, because he's the only one who can be and is the God-man He can bring god and humanity back to back together he's he's the king he's the rightful ruler over the entire universe including ourselves and so peter is having his eyes open he's starting to see this is who jesus is he's not just the names that people are saying he is the rightful ruler over everything he's the spokesman for god he's the one who reveals the truth he is the go-between between between god and us he's the one who gets us back into that relationship and with with god I love love this quote by uh, John Gerstner when he talks about Jesus. He says that no one has ever yet discovered the words Jesus ought to have said or the deed he ought to have done. Nothing he does falls short. In fact, he's always surprising you and taking your breath away because he is incomparably better than you could imagine for yourself. He is tenderness without weakness, strength without harshness, humility without the slightest lack of confidence holiness and unbending convictions without the slightest lack of approachability, power without insensitivity, passion without prejudice. There is never a false step, never a jarring note. This is life at the highest. P.T. Forsyth, obviously no relation to the mighty Bruce, um, said, if God is not like this, He is less than the God we crave for and less than the world needs. And, and this is the God that... that Jesus. Uh, so this is this is the Jesus that, that our father in heaven wants us to share with the world. This one who's is, is like no one else. He's better than everyone else. Who is the true uh, prophet, priest and king, the rightful ruler over everything. And the disciples start to get this. And this means, obviously, as we know, as we as we preach Jesus, we, we can't be um, worried about presenting Jesus as, as better than everyone else. He can't be sitting on the same shelf as everyone else. He is Either everything or is nothing. And, and because he is everything, that's got to fuel us up to share him as the only message and the only hope we have. We have nothing else to share with people. Nothing else is good. Um, we have Jesus and Jesus alone. So that's what's going on um, here. And um, as I say, it takes him two and a half years to see. And I think the situation, you know, with the blind man being a picture of, of the disciples' um, hard hearts. Here, what we're seeing is the disciples now have this kind of blurry vision of Jesus. They, they see Jesus like they see the tree, the men's, men looking like trees. This is where they're at. They have this partial understanding at this particular point about, about Jesus. They see who he is. And I, and I think this is why verse 30 comes into play, um, as it does, where it says Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Because at this stage, they've got a partial understanding of Jesus. They realise who he is, but they don't yet get who or what he is, so they don't yet get what he has come to do. And they have this partial understanding. And, and loads of people will tell you, obviously, with Mark's Gospel, that the first eight chapters are there dealing with who is Jesus, and the second half of the book is telling you what he has come to do. And that's exactly what's happening here. And I think Jesus is saying to them, at this particular point, um Don't go out sharing me right now because you've got all these crazy ideas in your mind about what the Messiah is and what you think the Messiah is going to do. I want you to go and tell the truth about why I've come here. I want you to come and tell people that I've come into this world to die for sinners and to rise again. I want you to tell them that. You don't even get that yet. And so I don't want you to speak about uh, me in a wrong sense. I want you to speak the truth about me. And I'm about to reveal that to you so you can go out and tell people. So this is what happens in, in verse 31. It says that He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So Jesus, verse 32, spoke plainly to them it's like a a wet paint sign on a bench with glossy shiny paint it's pretty obvious that there's wet paint on that bench so you're not going to go and sit on there and and Jesus when he says I will die and three days later I will rise again um, it's it's quite obvious very plain as Mark puts it um, speech that Jesus is using it's not difficult um, to, to comprehend and yet, you find the disciples just not getting it, even though Jesus states it plainly, simply, to the point, really clearly, doesn't waste any words. And yet, they still don't get it. And you've got to ask why. Um, and I think there are at least three reasons why um, they don't, don't get it. The first one is the, the least important, but we'll go through that. And then the other two are the big, big ones. Um, so I think the, the three reasons they don't get what Jesus is saying here about why he's here. Um, Firstly, is because of culture. Secondly, because of their own sin. And then thirdly, because of, of Satan. So let's, let's have a look at those. Firstly, then, the, the, the kind of cultural blind spot that they have. You see, those who've done their kind of PhDs or love to write big, chunky books on, on the evidence for the resurrection. Um, so so you, uh, you know, people like William Lane Craig, um, who likes to kind of uh, talk about this quite a lot and has done a lot of research into it, or NT Wright, um, and other such people will tell you that, that in terms of the resurrection the, the first century Jews had in their mind only that there would be a corporate resurrection um, at the end of time so come judgment day so everyone uh, both the dead and the living would rise the righteous and the unrighteous everyone would rise um, on, on judgment day and they got that from places like Daniel uh, chapter 12 and so they, all they had in view was this corporate resurrection and that was their, call, their understanding, kind of biblical and, and cultural. And so when Jesus comes along and says, I as an individual, I personally am going to rise on my own. Um, when he makes that statement to them, it just doesn't fit their culture. It doesn't fit because they've not been thinking that and they don't see that. And so they can't hear it. And, it, and so often we have those kind of cultural blind spots as well. We don't, we don't get things because that's not our culture and, and those kind of comments are alien to us. They just go straight over our heads. We have no categories for, for understanding that. And I think so there's that partial reason why they just don't get the very obvious. When Jesus says, I will rise after three days, one, two, three, they don't get it because they're, they have cultural blind spots um, involved uh, in what's going on. And again, it's so, something so important for us to, to be aware of. Uh, we all come from different backgrounds. We all have our different um likings and dislikes. We all have the things that we've taught as kids and the things that we that we weren't. And and we all have our own little um kind of subcultures. And so we're to be try to be as honest as we can about those things and be aware. Um, one of the 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 guys uh, that yesterday was quoted, um Jordan Peterson He's a very fascinating chap. You won't agree with everything he, he says. When uh, I think Sharon was mentioning him. this a uh, professor from, from Canada. Um, one of the things he, he often talks about is, is just the need uh, for... Oh, I've just forgotten what I was going to say then. Um, when he talk, what am I talking about? Cultural blind spots. Um, oh, I've forgotten what I was going to say. He, he, anyway, one of the things he says is, is that we've got to be very um, kind of choice, uh, very kind of uh, succinct in, in what we're actually saying. But I forgot the exact point I was going to make, which is really quite annoying right now. But let's not Sorry? it, Sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was it? Was, it was just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mine, yeah. Unlike my point there. But anyway, yeah, that we kind of um, be aware of, of our kind of cultural blind spots in, in the way we um, kind of deal with things. But that's certainly something that Jesus is picking up on, on here. That's one reason why the disciples didn't get what was going on. Um, The second kind of uh, issue, the second reason why we may have blind spots and why the disciples did is obviously because of our own sinful um, natures as well. And you see that in in verse 33. Um, uh, Peter rebukes Jesus in verse 32. And yet Jesus says, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And and that is to say that, that, that Peter and the other disciples had their ambitions for Jesus. They had Their idea of what Jesus should do next in their lives and in the life of of this world. And they had their wants and their desires. And that was what was at the forefront of Peter's mind. That's why he rebukes Jesus, because it doesn't match with the plans that he's got mapped out for him in his life. It just doesn't match up with it. And so he rebukes Jesus because it doesn't fit with his ideas. And again, how often does that happen with, with us? How often does it happen in our, in our ministries? Jesus, I want you to do this. And Roger even mentioned an example before we, we started tonight. You take care of my kids and I'll take care of the kids of this, this world. Um, that was our plan and we have our plans. Um, but so often they don't match up with, with Jesus. We have different plans for him. And, and yet Jesus calls us to come and follow him as the Messiah as the prophet, the priest and the king, the one who actually knows um, what what he's talking about. And I think this is a big reason why the disciples here have this uh, blindness to what's going on and why we so often will have our blindness even this year to what's going on in our lives because it doesn't fit with what we want. And Jesus says, I never promised you what you want. I've always promised you to follow me and I will take care of you no matter what um, you go through. So the sinful blind spot is a big one. Another reason to to mention um, that as well. I'll leave Francis Schaeffer out of it for a moment. Another reason to mention that is it's interesting to note the location of where they're in their region of. They're they're around kind of Caesarea Philippi um, at this time. And if you look or, or know anything about Caesarea Philippi up in the north of Israel, that it was well known for its um, to quote the, uh, the the word of the week so far the baal or the bael um, kind of worship. It was well known for that. There's loads of that stuff that go on there. There's loads of kind of temples that you kind of see that used to be scattered in front of this um, kind of cave, which I'll, I'll talk about in a little while. And so it was a well known place for idolatry. And Jesus is, is here, and Peter's basically being idolatrous. I've got my idols, I've got the, the things that I'm living for. Jesus, you've got to match up with this. And it's interesting that Jesus says there, in this midst of this idolatrous place, now Peter, throw away your idols, and get behind me, Satan. Um, live and listen uh, to, to what I'm saying. Believe, uh, believe me. So, we have our um, sinful blind spots. Let me just mention the Francis Schaeffer thing. The the reason I I, I put that on the screen is I was was reading recently about how he he fought against those sinful uh, blind spots. He had his eyes opened, if you like, um, on on one level to to, uh, a potential thing for him. So He was getting very famous at at a certain point in his life in America, in the States. And he could have had thousands and thousands of people listening to him. Um, Universities desperate for him to come along and speak into their context and and to talk um, and share the Christian faith. And, uh, and, and yet he felt the call of God to actually move from the States all the way over to, to Lausanne in Switzerland, and uh, well near Lausanne anyway, and go up a mountain um, and live in this uh, little tiny village in this obscure place, at and, and set up basically home in this mountain. And, and yet everyone was saying to him, you're being crazy, you're being stupid um, to, to do this. And yet he was saying, no, this is, this is where Jesus is leading me. And I'm going to go there, even though it seems stupid to everyone else. I'm, I'm going there because this is where Jesus is leading me. And it's it was, it was brilliant that he did because um, his sons then went off to university in Lausanne and they, they would say to their friends who had questions, well, come up and chat to my dad about it. And they would go up the mountain and because it's so obscure, it's such an obscure location, they'd have to stay overnight and they enjoyed the, welp- the welcome the hospitality of a warm Christian home. From Francis and his wife Edith Schaefer and they would have their questions answered and many people became Christians um, through that experience of, of being uh, with Francis and his wife Edith um, up, up there on the mountain and even a lady's written a really good book on, on culture and um, generally and the roots of what's going on today a lady called Nancy Piercy became a Christian um, because of uh, at that location because Francis Schaefer was being faithful to following the call of Jesus. Uh, and not the blind spots of our culture, which is if you can make it big, you, you've made it. And so it's just a, a little example of, of someone living that kind of way. But a, as I wrap up, um, we're going to come on to the, the final one here. So we have our, our cultural blind spots. We have our own sinful nature blind spots. Um, but the other one that, that's mentioned here is the satanic uh, blind spot as well. And Jesus obviously mentions there um, Satan in verse 33, where he says, get behind me, Satan. But I just wanted to draw out the, the whole kind of thing about uh, Caesarea Philippi, where they are, because I think these little details, in the, even in the Gospels, uh, are really quite profound in helping us understand what's taking place. You see, Caesarea Philippi, as you can see up on the map, was located in the region of, of Bashan. And Bashan, um, tr- literally translated, is the place of the serpent. So Jesus is in this place of the serpent at, at this time. Was, that's what it was known, known for being. And Caesarea Philippi, the, the, the place that's mentioned, um, sat really at the, the, at the base of Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon, as you saw in that picture before, had this huge cave. And that cave was known in Old Testament times as the, the gates of hell. And so when Jesus talks here and says, get behind me, Satan, um, what, what's going on in this particular region uh, when it, where, he's in, uh, where he's at the gates of hell, where he's at the place of the serpent? Well, Jesus is saying that the reason, let me tell you why I'm here. The reason I'm here to go and die on the cross is to come and storm the gates of hell. I've come here to smash them down. I've come here to destroy them so that people can be rescued from hell and be forgiven and be brought into relationship uh, with me and my father by the spirit that's why i'm here i've come to storm uh, the gates of hell and i think he, the, the reasons for saying this are even more clear when you look at matthew's version of, the, of that accounts because this is where peter and jesus continue talking and, and jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail um, against the church that's going to be built through, through the word of god going out jesus is saying look Satan will try and hinder the gospel. He'll try and stop the gospel going out. And, and Jesus is like, no way is that ever going to happen. The reason I'm here, the reason you're here, is to tell people the message about how I came into this world and I smashed the gates of hell. And I, I love the description of, of the gates of hell as well, because I think often we feel that kind of hell is on the attack. And on one level, of course, we're on a, in a spiritual warfare. And of course, we are being attacked by all kinds of spiritual forces uh, and the like. But when you get that phrase, the gates of hell, you've got to think gates aren't an offensive weapon. They're, they're defensive. They're, they're supposed to be um, defending um, the thing. And Jesus is saying, that hell's got no power against me. I've actually come, and I've, I'm going to come in, and when I die on that cross, I'm going to smash the, those gates and open the way for people to come to know my Father um, through me. And so Jesus won't have Peter um, distorting the gospel. He won't have him denying it. And I just love the way, as, as I kind of wrap up, the way that, that Jesus, when he, when he says this in verse 33, it says, Jesus turned and looked at his disciples And you can kind of just imagine Jesus doing that, saying, Peter, I I love you as well, and I love these guys. You're not going to stop me going to the cross, because it's the only way people can escape hell. It's the only way. If there's another way as he cried out in the Garden of of Gethsemane, then 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 that would be great. But there is no other way. This is the only way. And he looks at his disciples in love, as he looks out on this world in love, and he says, this is the only way for you to be rescued. And we've got this great message to tell people. They have no hope of escaping hell without Jesus. Jesus has died, he has risen, he's done exactly what he said he would do in verse 31. He rose again after three days, he's alive now, and we have a message that is living and powerful to proclaim. Let's pray, and I'll I'll, I'll throw on a song at the end that pumps the old blood around around the heart and the veins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we have a brilliant gospel in Jesus. We thank you that... He was prepared to speak the truth. He was prepared to do whatever is necessary to help people um, see the truth about you. Father, we're sorry for the times where we have hard hearts, where we, where we focus on being self-reliant, where we look to ourselves, when, when we forget all that you've done for us in the cross, in creation, and everything, Father. We forget it all and we, we just become hard again. And we pray that you would give us soft hearts As we see more of Jesus, as we see exactly who he is and what he has done, we pray you would make our hearts overflow with love for you and love for this world. Father, thank you that Jesus did come, he did die, he did rise again on the third day. And Father, we thank you that he has ascended to your right hand and has sat down. The job is done. Forgiveness is not just possible, it's the reality in Christ. And Father, we pray you give us all the passion in the world to tell everyone we meet about your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. Amen.